of the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed in the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of the men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Culture. What is culture? 50 years ago, New Zealanders hardly had to understand the concept of different cultures. You see, New Zealand sort of only had one culture, the New Zealand culture. But nowadays, the country is so different. It is a multicultural and diverse place. And this word culture has never been so important as today. And it's our responsibility to understand the culture of people living around us. We often carry principles of how we behave into the relationship, which can sometimes cause misunderstanding or controversy. However, it is important to understand the backgrounds of people and approach them where they are. As a business student, I've realised these principles are especially important. For example, let's say I was doing business with a Chinaman. It would be helpful to understand how things work for them. This is done by learning their language, maybe understanding their history and becoming familiar with the customs of the Chinese. I might um, quote some famous Chinese people like Confucius or Chairman Mao because they understand those people as part of their cultural background. And this is exactly what Paul does when he came to Athens. 
Even though he was a Jewish man, he understood the thoughts and philosophies of the Greeks. He knew the way that the men of Athens discussed things and he tailored his arguments to those patterns. Now today when I say Greeks, I am talking about the people here living in Athens, living in these Greek provinces, not as the Gentiles as, as a whole, as in some interpretations of the New Testament, some translations. So through the beginning of the passage, we gain an understanding of what it would have been like to live in Athens or to be in Athens at the same time as Paul. And this is my first point, an introduction to Athens. Athens was the cultural centre of the world. There were all kinds of people there. But today, we're going to focus on three characteristics of these people. The first being that Athens was caught up in, not adultery, idolatry. (laughs) Um, So looking around the city, it says, Paul saw many idols. Um, That doesn't go to say that um, other places in Paul's journeys that there wasn't idols, but probably in Athens there's especially a lot of idols. That doesn't make sense. Anyway, there was lots of idols there. Um, So Paul says that the city was full of idols. And this helps us to understand um, what it was like for the Greeks. As far back as uh, historians have found, the Greeks are firm believers in polytheistic religion, meaning that they believed that there was many gods as opposed to just one. I think 18 main gods that they had, um, the, the leader, sort of the top dog of these was Zeus. Zeus, Zeus. Um, and outside of these main 18, there were also hundreds of other gods and demigods. And the way that these would have been displayed, these idols, is um, there would have been pillars all around the city and they'd sit these little idols, sometimes made of wood, stone, gold, like Paul says. Um, And then people can come and worship those at any time. But in addition to that, there would have been these big idols. Um, Like there's a statue of the goddess Athena um, and that would have sat in this huge temple called the... Parthenon, and they say that the statue would have been, including the base and the statue, just shy of a set of rugby goalposts in height. So this massive statue uh, sitting in the temple. In addition to this, um, maybe rich people might have idols in their courtyards uh, so that their families and their servants can all worship there. So basically, if you lived in Athens and you wanted to worship, it wouldn't be too hard to find a place to go. So Paul saw this idolatry and he was saddened. So he went to the synagogue to his own people. And Gary touched on this a a little bit last week. It says that he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. Um, The the transfer back and forth of dialogue. And no doubt Paul was saying about how Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, um, the fulfilment of those scriptures. However, the Jews are not his target audience today. And um, he, he does that more in his next couple of cities he visits, so I won't touch much on that one today. So Paul then moves to the marketplace. In the marketplace, he is approached by two philosophical groups, which the Epicureans and the Stoics. And this brings us to our second characteristic. Athens was caught up in philosophy. Athens was caught up in philosophy. The city of Athens had a rich history of logical reasoning and philosophy. It was the home of famous philosophers. You probably would have heard of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, 
and maybe Epicurus and Zeno. And the population would be split into all these different groups of these different philosophers. Some would say, I follow Zeno. Some would say, I follow Socrates and his teaching. And they love nothing more than to discuss and argue these different the um, philosophies with each other. The Epicureans, so we've got a couple here, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that the goal in life was to achieve maximum pleasure, maximum happiness, but not by sex and greed like um, some others, but more by like the right amount of food and the right amount of sleep to have a good, comfortable life. A problem with this is that you come across what's called the hedonistic paradox, which is a fancy term for trying to get happy, but you can't really get happy. And I'll explain why. If they didn't achieve the right amount of food or sleep to get this comfortable life, then they wouldn't be happy, right? Because they didn't reach their goal. However, if they do get the right amount of sleep and the right amount of food and they get this comfortable life, then they've achieved it and they're bored and so they're therefore not happy. So they get stuck in this hedonistic paradox. And then there's the Stoics and they followed a man named Zeno. And he was quite a clever guy. He came up with this, um, this paradox, this uh, prob problem, and it stated that it would take me an infinite amount of time to walk from one side of the stage to the other. And it's quite interesting, and it actually does make sense, somewhat. Um, yeah, but the Stoics, so Zeno founded the Stoics, and the Stoics believe that you, um, the, pursuit of happy was, happy, the pursuit of happiness could be found in values and doing good to others. So there's all these different kinds of ideas. And like I said, they would argue and discuss who was right. And I think that we see quite a bit of this today. People using logic to argue not only maths and science, but matters of Christianity, spiritual things, trying to disprove God with philosophy. They ask, where have the miracles gone? How could a good God allow pain, sickness, and death? How can heaven be true when no one's seen it? Or they say the Bible cannot be reliable because translation is like playing Chinese whispers. And part of our understanding our culture is understanding that people don't believe something just because you say it. They're, they're going to argue it and they're going to try and disprove it and push their own ideas in. So Athens was caught up in philosophy. And the third one, the third characteristic is that Athens was caught up in what was new caught up in what was new. The Athenians were not ones to shut down a new idea they hadn't heard before. It says, they loved to spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. And this talking and hearing of something new was deeply ingra ingrained in this Greek culture, um, similar to the, phil the philosophical things, um, since the days of Socrates and Aristotle, it's just what they do. While other peoples and other countries would try and build up their cities or maximise their harvest that year, the Greeks loved to sit around and talk about ideas and philosophy. The, the, the new ideas and share them and try and disprove them and try and prove them. And they'd get all caught up in what is new. And I think that this too is a fascination that we have today. New technology. We love new technology, the newest iPhone. Maybe your friend wants to tell you their new perspective on climate change. You turn in the TV to the six o'clock news because you don't want to miss out on the latest update. 
We're obsessed. How many of you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is look at your phone to see if you've got any new messages? And the problem is not the new things in themselves. It's important to not get caught up like the Greeks do here, spending all their time in nothing except hearing and talking of something new. I think when it comes to the Bible, new ideas can be dangerous, can be dangerous. Not long after I finished high school, I went and I studied in America for a year and a half, uh, studying the Bible at a well-known Bible college with a well-known president and a well-known faculty. And the, the college held pride in the fact that it stayed true to God's word. And after my semester in Israel, in which I had studied under one of the teachers who had studied Hebrew and the Bible in Israel for over 30 years, um, I get the news that he had been asked to leave the faculty because his beliefs no longer lined up with the university's doctrinal statement. And what had happened is that he had come up with this new interpretation of the Old Testament and this new interpretation of the New Testament. Um, and he had come to these new conclusions that neither Jesus or the Holy Spirit was God. And I think that these sort of new theories and ideas are all around us today. People are fascinated with finding something new in the Bible. And I think that it comes with yeah, excitement and popularity, um, people following them in these uh, new interpretations. I think that we can hold to the principle that sometimes the, um, in looking for something new, we can get caught up in, uh, oh, sorry, in finding something new can sometimes be at the expense of truth. And that was the third characteristic that uh, differentiated the Greeks from the other people around them. So that's our three characteristics. So they brought brought Paul to the Areopagus, as it says in verse 19. The Areopagus is a flat-topped rock. It's big. I don't know how big it is. It's not as big as like Ayers Rock, but it's sort of just this rock in the middle of the city. Big enough for like maybe a few hundred people to, to stand on top. Because what they did is the Areopagus was uh, the name of the council. And it was sort of like a group of men uh, who would hold, and they'd hold trials up on top of this rock um, for criminals and stuff. As well as this though, they would also just have general discussions as they love to do um, up on top of this rock. So Paul wasn't on trial here but they just wanted to hear his new ideas, um, hear his philosophy and get into a discussion around that. So they took Paul up here to hear his new idea and see how it lined up against their polytheism, their stoicism, their epicureanism and anything else new. And I just ask you, what would you do in this situation? When people who don't like what you're saying, who don't like your faith call you a babbler, They say that your God is foreign and outdated, no longer of use. You're standing before educated people with knowledge of the newest philosophies, the newest scientific evidence against Christianity. They're demanding an answer. I encourage you to do what Paul does. Meet them where they are at. Understand how they work. Come to them from their point of view. When telling people the gospel, we must do so in an effective and understandable way for the listener. If they come at you with a problem of hurt and disappointment, tell them of God's love. If they come to you with evolution, tell them of creation. 
If they come to you with philosophy, talk with logic. Do your research. Study the Word. It's absolutely full of answers. Study also what they believe. Study how they work. And that's what we see Paul doing. So now that we've set the scene for the thoughts and backgrounds of Paul's audience, we will now see how he is to confront these people. Verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And this is my second point today. Making known the unknown God. Making known the unknown God. Paul says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to worship an unknown God. What do you say to something that you know nothing about? We worship God um, with songs like 10,000 Reasons or Majesty because we know what it's about. Whereas I feel like for the unknown God, they might sing songs like Indescribable. (laughs) Or maybe How Great Is Our Unknown God? And I can just imagine them um, approaching the altar. You've got one guy on those little double flute thingies and then the singers come up, the splendor of something clothed in mystery. It's just speculation. I'm not sure. I'm, sh- I'm sure they had a way of offering praise to this unknown God of theirs. But Paul, seeing that these men of Athens had a gap in their theology, sought to fill that gap with the truth, to make known to them the unknown God. And throughout the first part of Paul's sermon, he makes known five attributes of God. And here they are. Verse 24, God is the creator. Paul introduces the unknown God as the God who made the world and everything in it. God made it all. The stars and the planets, the big things, to even the smallest little proteins in our bodies. And for this reason, in Revelation 4.11, the elders cry out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honour and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. When I was a little boy, I used to play with toy trains. Thomas the Tank Engine. And I had some little plastic tracks and a few plastic trains that I'd accumulated from birthdays and Christmases. And each time I'd play with these toy trains, I'd build a new track. And because I used my materials to create my design, that made me the creator and the track my creation. And it's the same with God. God created the world out of nothing. He put the material into existence and he made his own universe the way that he wanted. Therefore, he was the creator. And that is why he is worthy for the honour, glory and power. As you keep moving through verse 24, being Lord of heaven and earth. The second attribute, God is the ruler. God is the Lord over his creation, the Lord of heaven and earth. He rules heaven and he rules the earth. And it was just like me with my toy train set. I was the ruler. I got to make the rules. I got to choose which way the trains go around the track. I got to choose how many trains are on the track at the same time. The trains don't choose that. They just go around and do their thing. 
And it's the same with the earth. It belongs to God. The heavens belong to God. He rules them. He chooses the rules. He chooses how the laws of physics work. He chooses which people he puts on the earth. He chooses which people he wants to save. The people and all the rest of the creation just do what they do. And it's God who deserves the honour and power. The third attribute, God is the giver. Verse 24 to 25. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. Paul compares his God with the, God of the, the gods of the Greeks here. The gods of the Greeks lived in temples. Uh, I talked about the Parthenon, which is the, the massive temple on the hill in Athens. But most of the cities in Athens, sorry, most of the cities in Greece would have had um, at least one temple dedicated to one of these main gods. And so, yeah, so Paul is comparing his God who doesn't live in temples to the Greek gods that lived in temples. But you might be saying, wait a second, Tom. Didn't the God of the Bible live in a temple for over 800 years? This is different, however, because the Bible clearly teaches that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. And it was a manifestation of the glory of God that dwelt in the temple. Solomon even said after he had constructed the temple and was dedicating it to the Lord in prayer, 1 Kings 8.27. But will God indeed dwell on this earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. God does not need to live in a temple. He does not need to be served by human hands because he is the one who hands things out. He gives to all. Naked we came from our mother's womb. We bring nothing to God. God gives it all to us. Number four, God is the controller. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. When I play toy trains, I am the one who controls what goes on. I choose which trains I put on the track. I choose which way the little switchy things point. I control the speed and I control the freight that each of the trains get to carry. In the same way, God sovereignly controls everything on the earth. Which nations are strong? Which nations are weak? Which nations rise up and take over the other ones? When, jo when God is talking to Job out of the tornado, he says, am not I the one who causes the sun to rise and to go down? Am I not the one who releases the snow and the hail from the heavenly storehouses? God is in control of all. And this would have been interesting for the Greeks because they have a different concept of um, their gods. They don't believe in a sovereign God. Their gods would uh, have influence over earthly affairs perhaps, but they wouldn't be controlling overall. The final attribute of God is that he is the revealer. Verse 27 and 28. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now you might notice in your Bible that uh, the words are, are written a little bit differently. It's not all in a straight paragraph. And what Paul's doing here is he's actually quoting a Greek poet, a famous Greek poet. So all of these men of the Areopagus who are listening would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. And this is an example of 
Paul understanding their culture and using that culture to explain the message to them. God has not only created, ruled, given and controlled the earth, but he reveals himself through general revelation. That is what God has revealed in nature as opposed to what he's given in the Bible. And that's for all of mankind. His creation bears the marks of his glory. Most scientists would say that the complexity of the human body and other life forms are so detailed that they admit it could only have come from intelligent design. And that is why they have to come to the conclusion that humans and life must have been put here on earth by aliens and all of that rubbish. Romans 1 and 2 clearly states that through creation and our conscience, it is clear that a God exists. And this is where push comes to shove for these Greeks of the Areopagus and anyone who thinks hard enough about their existence. They have to admit that there is something up there that created worthy of their honour and glory and power who has been revealed. So Paul makes known to the Greeks, Paul makes known to us, the unknown God, the God who created, rules, gives to and controls and reveals himself and he is mighty and powerful. And here's the best thing, this mighty and powerful God that we know is not bad. He's great. He's good. Romans 2 verse 4 rhetorically says, Do you underestimate the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And this brings me to my final point, the command of the unknown God. The times of ignorance. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent means to change one's mind or purpose. To go from pursuing one thing to pursuing another. God is commanding people to turn from pursuing sin and earthly pleasures to pursuing him. For the Greeks, it is turning from the idolatry and pride. For us today, it is turning from the sin that ensnares us to fixing our eyes on God. And the command carries through directly to us today. God has overlooked the times of ignorance. He doesn't hold you to that selfish moment from this morning. He doesn't care about that person you treated last week, the whole life of sin you may have lived, as long as you obey this one command. Repent. Unbeliever, repent. And God will overlook your former sins. He will make you pure. It says, He will remove your transgressions as far as the east is from the west, which unless you're a flat earther is a long way. <laughs> Christian brethren, repent. Repent of that most recent sin. You know the one I'm talking about. And you will experience refreshment. That's a promise. Notice here that Paul doesn't say he commands all people everywhere to ask Jesus into their heart. He doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. He doesn't say to believe that the Bible is true. What he says is to repent, and repentance comes with faith. Faith that we know who God is, and who he says he is, and Christ is our Saviour. And that is what it means to believe as it says some people did in verse 34. Why should we believe? 
It says, because God has fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's talking about Jesus Christ. God has set apart a day to judge people. Read about it in Matthew 25 and Revelation 20. On this day, you're going to be judged by Jesus Christ and you're going to want to know him. You're going to want to be covered by his blood. And we can often forget how close this day really is, the day of Christ's return. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. If I told you that Jesus was returning tomorrow, would your life look any different? And he's given us assurance that this is a real day because he has risen from the dead. The Greeks did not have a concept of bodily resurrection in their theology. Many of the members of the Areopagus mocked. Some wanted to hear more and some believed. Three responses. You may be here today and you've heard this message before. You've heard this message about Jesus dying on the cross for sinners. On the other hand, this may be the first time you've heard about the unknown God. This God that is no longer unknown to you, he's made himself known. And I ask you, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this known God? Are you going to mock? Are you going to turn away and risk bringing your unrighteousness before the righteous judge on that day? Are you going to hear more? Are you going to come and talk to myself or one of the elders after the service? Are you going to ask questions to the person who brought you along today? Are you going to come back next week to hear more about this God? Or are you going to be like Dionysius and Damaris here, who believed and repented, who joined the Christian group and was given the gift of Christ's righteousness to guarantee being resurrected to eternal life? People of the congregation, do not hesitate to make known to people the unknown God. Paul did it because the day of judgment is near. We should do it because the day of judgment is even nearer than near. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your infallible, unchanging word that you have given us. Thank you for the lessons that you have put in our hearts this morning. Thank you that you are so great, worthy of honour and glory and power. But God, that you are also so good that you've given us your son, given us life. I pray that we would be good stewards of the gospel and not keep it to ourselves, that we would preach it to others in an effective and understandable way, like Paul has here in Athens. God, I pray that this message would not just become another part of our sermon diary, but another part of our lives. In your precious name, amen. Amen.